Welcome to the Vail Christian Church Podcast, where we are training followers of Christ to worship, gather, give, and serve. You guys, I'm excited about what we're going to talk about today. I want you to, I want you to turn to the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 8. So I've been uh, kind of spent a little bit of time in Revelation, and it kind of influenced even some things that I uh, <clears throat> said at Christmas Eve or talked about at Christmas Eve, and I was really intrigued I'm always intrigued with the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. You're going to want to turn there today. Don't, don't, uh, don't forsake opening up, cracking open your Bible. Everybody's intrigued with Revelation. It's a difficult book to understand. It's a difficult book to study. We want to know all about it. We want somebody to teach us about it, is what I find. But it takes work. And the reason why is because the language, the the language that John uses to describe uh, the end, and uh, it, it all comes out of the Old Testament. So if you're going to understand the book of Revelation, you have to read the Old Testament, and you have to go to that, uh, the Old Testament language and a lot of those metaphors and, and things and the descriptions that John uses, he drags out of the Old Testament, and that's why it's so difficult to understand. Plus... We're trying to interpret it through a 21st century uh, language and mind. And so you got all these things clogging it up, right? So, he, he, you know, obviously he didn't have the iPhone, Google, or anything, right? So his descriptions are things that take some work, right, to connect to. That's why you got to go back to the Old Testament and then you got to paw through all those languages and those images and all that stuff. And then uh, trying to apply it to the now, it, it takes work, it, it, it truly does, but we're always intrigued with Revelation. But as we wind up the new year, this last Sunday in the new year, um, it's been my habit to teach on uh, and inspire you regarding prayer in particular. And so I find that I, I think you're going to, um, I think you're gonna be excited about what God wants to reveal to us about prayer in this book right here. It's, it's actually pretty magnificent. I would say it's, it's, it's powerful, and it reveals um, uh, God's heart about prayer and, and God himself. Reveals a lot about God. Um, I always seem to kind of lose my voice, so I'm going to kind of bring it down just a little bit. You might have to turn me up, because I'm going to start talking quiet. Because uh, I don't want Dr. Porterfield scolding me for drinking cough syrup. He's done that before. He's come to me after a service and like, how much cough syrup have you drank? I, I'm, I've been careful. I gargle it and spit it out, okay? I don't swallow it. I got coffee. It may have a little something in it, but I got coffee up here. Okay? <clears throat> so I'm going to try to be careful because it's about three days almost four days where I, I didn't have any voice at all. Chapter eight, and there's five verses here, okay? Follow along with me. Don't forsake following along with me because it's gonna be really good, I promise. So starting in, in verse one, chapter eight, it says, now when the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was a silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel 
holding a golden censer, came and was stationed at the altar. A large amount of incense was given to him to offer up with the prayers of all the saints, those are Christ followers, on the golden altar that is before the throne. Now, that's the key verse right there, but let's keep going. The smoke coming up from the incense, along with the prayers of the saints, ascended before God from the angel's hand. And then the angel took the censer, that's like a scepter, or excuse me, like a bowl, kind of like a bowl sort of thing. The angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and he threw it on the earth, and there were crashes of thunder, roaring, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. So this is a pretty powerful scene that John's describing. And the astonishing thing about this scripture Right? This text is that it illustrates, it, or, or it's an illustration or a picture of the prayers of Christ followers being the instrument God uses to usher in the end of the world, all right? Or the end of, uh, end of the world with, with divine judgment, okay? Not that everything's going to disappear, but it's going to be different, Right? It's a picture of the prayers of Christ's followers accumulating on the altar before the throne of God until the time when they're taken up by, or taken up like fire from the altar, and then they're thrown on the earth to bring about the completion of God's kingdom. I want you to think about this for a minute, because in other words, What we got here in this text, what we have is an explanation of what has happened to the millions upon millions of prayers over the last 2,000 years as Christ followers, as Christ followers have cried out again and again and again, God, may your kingdom come, may your will be done. Not one of these prayers prayed in faith. Now, prayed in faith is a key term right there. But not one of these prayers has been ignored if it's, prayed in, if it's prayed in faith. Not one is lost. Not one prayer is forgotten. Not one prayer has been pointless. They've all been gathering on the altar before the throne of God. Now that's pretty exciting, I think. And the fire on this altar, it's been growing bigger and bigger and bigger and more and more pleasing in the presence of God. And the time will come when God will command his angel to take this, his censer, all right, this bowl, and fill it with fire from the altar where their prayers burn before the Lord, and he's gonna pour it out on all the world to bring all God's great and holy purposes to completion. Which means that the, the culmination and the consummation of history is uh, um, that, that, that Christ followers are going to be included and utilized, all right? This is the point. What this means is that Christ followers are going to be utilized in this culmination, all right, of history, Every, all the Christ followers who cry out to God day and night, not one God-fearing, believing, exalting prayer has, is, is, has ever been and is going to be in vain. 
okay? Now, this is significant right here. This is a huge acknowledgement to the enormous historical importance of prayer. I think this is really, really powerful. Powerful. So what I want to do is I want to kind of pull back just a little bit with you. Stand back if you want to say it like that. And see and help you see that this is true. Okay? I want you to, we're, we're going to go back and we're going to get sort of the flow or the thinking of John before he gets here. All right? And we're going to look at in more detail at this text. So the text actually begins in Revelation 8.1 with a reference to the opening of the seventh seal, right? Verse 1, it says, and when he broke the seventh seal, there was a silence in heaven for about a half an hour. So to understand all that, the meaning of this reference to a seventh seal, you got to go way back to the beginning of chapter 5. So turn back to chapter 5. And this is where John begins to talk about the seven seals and what they're all about, okay? So we'll, we'll start right here, and this is about the scroll or the book of history and its seventh seal. Go ahead and put that up, John. Yeah, right there. So verse one says, then I saw in the right hand of God, uh, in the right hand of the one, that's God the Father, okay, who was seated on the throne, a scroll or a book, okay, written on the front and back and sealed with seven seals, okay? So what we're looking at here is a scroll rolled up with seven seals across the opening flap. I don't know exactly how it looked. I don't know if it was rolled like this, whatever. Or you can think of a book with seven seals on it, okay? And what the opening of the scroll represents is the unfolding of the end of history, all right? In... If you go back to chapter 4, verse 1, John had been brought up into heaven in the spirit and promised that he would see what must take place after this. In other words, he was told he would be given a glimpse into the way history would come to a climax, okay? So this sealed up scroll that he's talking about here represents the unfolding of that promise for John and the end of history, so the scroll or the book, it has seven seals that have to be removed before it can be opened, all right? God, God's holding it. An angel in chapter five, verse two, look at verse two, with a loud voice says, who's worthy to open the scroll and, and to break its seals, right? So the purpose, or the purpose of God the Father is to involve someone besides himself in the opening of history and the administration of the end times. Remember, we, we don't spend very much time talking about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All equally God with different roles, different jobs, so to speak. So God the Father is already indicating that his purpose is to involve someone besides himself in the opening of history and the administration of the end times. So let's talk about the one worthy to open the book and to break the seals. That's my next point. Verse three, look at verse three in chapter five. 
But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. So John begins to cry. He begins to weep. He's sad about this, right? Thinking that his hope of seeing the end of history would be denied. Then in verse 5, one of the elders around the throne of God said to John, stop weeping. He's like, you know, dry up. (laughs) Come on. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, that's Jesus, the root of David, remember we talked about that at Christmas, has conquered, right? Thus, he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And if we ask, in one sense, is Jesus overcome, right? That that kind of statement begs the question, you know, and why is he worthy to open the seals? The answer is given in verses 9 through 10. Look at verses 9 and 10 of chapter 5. They, or those around the throne, they were singing a new song. You, or Jesus, are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were killed. And at the cost of your own blood, you've purchased for God's persons from every tribe, language, people, and nation. You've appointed them as a, king, as a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. So God's view of Jesus, his son, as having the right to open the seals of history and oversee its final unfolding because Jesus died, and in the dying, he set, he set free the Christ followers from all the nations, and he's made them priests, and he's established them as rulers of the earth. <clears throat> in other words, what happened at the cross was the key to history. What happened at the cross was the key to history. It unlocked the future unfolding of God's plan. The one who will ride with a sword. I read this at Christmas Eve, one of the last things I said. The one who will come riding in with a sword and rule the nations with a rod of iron has the right to do that because he was a lamb slain. So God is willing to give the judgment of history only into the hands of the one who came not to judge, but to save. Jesus means savior, right? So Jesus begins to break the seals. That's the next point here. He begins to open up the seals of the scroll of history. And with the opening of each seal, a vision is given to John, not of the actual end, okay? Not of the actual end of the world, That comes when the scroll itself is opened after all seven seals are taken off its outer edge, seven trumpets and seven bulls. But what John sees is, this is what I think, this is what I I believe here. I think what is called in Mark chapter 13, verse eight, you don't have to turn there, but the beginning of birth pangs. You know, just before you have a baby, right? Uh, you know, <laughs> you have these pains. And, uh, you know, Lynn and I went to the hospital twice and it was a total false alarm. I got scolded twice, you know, by the nurse. She's like, hey, you know, take this woman home. This is just, what do they call those? Braxton Hickson pains, right? So we didn't know anything, you know. We get down there and it was like, Nope, false alarm. So what happens? The third time, I'm like, Linda's like, hey, I think we should go. You know what I said? No. 
Let's walk around the block. Let's go get something to eat. I'm not getting scolded the third time. Scolded, right? So finally, you know, I'm distracting her. We're walking around. She's like, she's just totally, you know, beside herself. And I'm like, honey, come on, serious, right? So finally, we waddle into the doctor, into the hospital, right? And the nurse is like, you guys again. She comes to me. She's like, are you sure? And I'm like, listen, this lady is, I don't know. <laughs> you know, just take a look, would you? So then she's like, oh my gosh, you know, and I get scolded a third time. She's like, how come you waited so long? <laughs> so we get all set up in there and Linda's like, give me the drugs. And the nurse is like, it's too late. You're having this baby in 20 minutes. <laughs> we looked at each other, 20 minutes, what? She's like, you walked me all over the planet. <laughs> ah. <laughs> And we did, we had a baby in 20 minutes, just bam. It's like unheard of, right? Going to the hospital 20 minutes later, right? Birth pangs. You know, all that's rumbling and stuff, right? We're all trying to interpret it, by the way. What is it? Earthquakes and wars and all. You know, aren't you trying to do that? It's like, oh, this is the end times. It can't get any worse than this. Well, Jesus says the beginning of the birth pangs are going to come, you know, eventually, Mark 13. So you just need to be ready. The kind of things in history that lead up to the end and mark this age with increasing intensity, right? So Jesus said, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There's going to be earthquakes in various places. I, we just, we've just seen some of them, right? There's going to be famines. These are just the beginnings of birth pangs. So... Here we go. Now follow along with me and take some notes here. I got six of them, right? I think I'm going to put them up in order, okay? Here's the first one, the breaking of the first seal. In chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, it reveals a white horse. So Jesus opens his first seal, a white horse is going out to conquer, a symbol of Christ, a symbol of Jesus, and the spread of the gospel, but more likely a symbol of simply a military conquest, Okay? And then the second seal's open. That's in chapter 6, verse 3. The opening of the second seal reveals a fiery red horse. And that stands for war and the taking away of peace and men killing each other. The Net Bible says butchering each other. That's a bad one. Right? The third one, opening the third seal, chapter 6. Verses 5 and 6 reveals a black horse that stands for famine. And a quart of wheat is going to cost a day's pay. And then the fourth seal, chapter 6, verse 8, reveals a pale green horse. That was a seriously crazy looking horse, right? But that represents death and Hades or hell. And they're given the authority over a fourth of the earth to kill its population with the sword, with famine, disease, and by wild animals. Can you imagine? You've seen that movie where the zoo, all the animals are let out of the zoo? That's all I can think of right there. Everybody's going to get, start get eaten up by animals and stuff. Man, this is awful. And then the fifth seal, 
Chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, John gets a glimpse of the souls of Christ followers that are martyrs under the altar of God, crying out for the vindication of the cause of truth and the blood they had shed. And then the opening of the sixth seal, chapter 6, verse 12, brings us as close to the end as we get in, in, in the beginning of the birth pangs, right? With all the apocalyptic signs of earthquake, darkened sun and moon, stars falling, the heavens splitting, mountains and uh, islands moving out of their places. That sounds nuts, doesn't it? And the enemies of God trying to hide from the wrath of the Lamb of God in verse 16. So, before the opening of the final seal, this is the next point, a vision of the Christ followers and their destiny, okay? John is given a vision of the destiny of all who believe in Jesus and, and surrender allegiance to him in all of this upheaval as it's going on, right? In chapter seven, in eight verses then, one through eight, he sees that they will be sealed by God on earth so they are preserved for him. And then in chapter seven, verses nine through 17, he sees them in the final triumphant state in heaven as an uh, uncountable, enormous crowd from every nation serving God in security and satisfaction forever and ever. So now we get to the silence or the significance of the silence after the final seal. Chapter 8, verse 1, right? The lamb, or Jesus, opens the seventh seal, the last one before the entire scroll can be opened and the end of history unfolds, right? The result is silence. Let's read it. Now when the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. That's, that's got to be a painful silence. Have you ever had to be put in timeout and there's, it's just quiet? It's more painful, you know, when Mitchell was a little boy, my son, and, uh, and when you punished Mitchell, you give him a choice. You can either take the spanking or you can time out. Which one do you think he chose? Give me the spanking every time. Because sitting in time out was torture. Because you just have to sit there and be quiet. He hated that. He's like, bring it. I'll take whatever you can dish out. You know, get, you, you have to hit him, pop him so good that you're like, is it, you, I mean, it was, you, you shouldn't do it, right? Because there's no way he's going to cry. So he would say, give me the spanking. And I'd say, I changed my mind. Time out. <laughs> oh, because it's painful. I think that's what's happening here. During the silence, what happens? The angel armies of heaven, they stand in dread and awe. They're awestruck with what is about to happen with the opening of the scrolls. Can you imagine this heavenly host in silence just waiting, knowing what's about to happen? 
But more than dread and awe is in the silence. Just at this point, God wants to show something to John about the role of Christ's followers in all this tremendous upheaval in history. Up until now, the breaking of the seal has simply shown the utter awesome sovereignty of God's controlling hands or whatever you want to call it in history and all of its cataclysmic disasters and the fate of of the believers that are secure in the heaven, all right? In chapter 7, verses 15 through 17, the unbelievers, those without Christ, those that are far from God are crying out for the mountains and the rocks to fall on them. That's how bad it is in chapter 6, verse 16, right? But now God has something else to show us, and this is significant. What does he have to show us? What what is our place in all of this as Christ followers, right? Do we have a role, any role to play? Do we make anything happen? Are we just small, tiny elements in this whole thing? Insignificant. In this silence, after the opening of the seventh seal, we don't just have a, a picture of the dread and the awe of the angel armies of heaven before the end of the world unfolds. We have a dramatic presentation of the importance of prayers of Christ followers, of the saints. Before the scrolls open, God wants to make clear to John and to his readers, and that's us, that the unfolding of the end of the world will happen by the prayers of Christ followers. Now think about that. We wrestle and we struggle to pray. We feel like it's insignificant. A lot of times you feel like you're praying and you're like, it's just not getting past the ceiling. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's because your prayers aren't in faith. You're just asking and you're treating God like Santa Claus. That's part of it. But I'm telling you, prayers are a big deal. Prayers that that, that are true and right and good. God has preserved all the prayers of all the saints, all the Christ followers. That's the next point. Look, look at verse 8 in Revelation 8, or excuse me, verse 3, excuse me, verse 3. Here it comes, verse 3, chapter 8. Another angel holding the golden censer, that's his bowl, came and was stationed at the altar And a large amount of incense, I don't know how large that is, but it's got to be huge, was given to him to offer up with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar that's before the throne. So notice, it is the prayers of all the saints that have been piling up on the altar. If you wonder where your prayers go and what God does with them, here's one of the answers. It's just one of the answers. They go onto the altar before his throne. If human beings can invent a microchip that holds millions of bytes of information, you know, there's actually millions of bytes of information on my iPad. It's, it's, it's full. We can, we, we, if, if we can do that, all right, It's not difficult to imagine that God has no trouble at all devising a way to preserve all, uh, preserve on his altar every prayer that has ever been prayed in the name of Jesus. That's what he does. Now, what God does with all these prayers comes next, right? 
When the time is right, he does something with these prayers. He sends an angel to mingle heavenly incense with these prayers, signifying that all of heaven and all the prayers of the saints are one. They're united. It's an act of worship, a unification, right? And in verse 4, that worship ascends before the Lord. Look at verse 4. The smoke coming up from the incense, along with the prayers of all of, of the saints, ascends before God and from the angel's hand. And then something happens that shows that the prayers of all the saints or Christ followers are the cause of a great historical upheaval as history comes to an end. Look at verse 5. Then the angel took the censer, he took the bowl, he filled it with fire from the altar, that is, with the burning prayers of all the saints, and he throws it onto the earth, and there were crashes and thunder roaring and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. These great events, thunder, roaring flashes, light, all this stuff, earthquakes, simply represent the action of God from heaven on the world as the scroll of the end of the age begins to open and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls are poured out, the unmistakable point is that your prayers bring all that about. Prayer is powerful and it's super important to God. What God wants us to know, what God wants us to believe about our God worshiping prayers is that none of them are lost. None of them are wasted. None of them are pointless. They're stored up on the altar of God until that appropriate time when God pours them out on the earth to accomplish his great purposes of judgment and reclaiming and redemption. So here's the two practical implications. I'm just going to bring it home really quick. I love this part. There's two things for us. Number one, is what Jesus said in Luke chapter 18, verse 1. What's he say there? He says, then Jesus told them they should always pray and not lose heart. Always pray and not lose heart. Don't give up. Don't think it doesn't work. Don't think it doesn't count. Don't think they don't go anywhere. Prayers, faithful prayers, <laughs> prayers in faith, Right? This truth that prayers are stored up on the altar of God and made power for great divine interventions in history has got to encourage us that it's not pointless to pray again and again and again. Pray, God, may your name be honored. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right out of Matthew 6. That's the Lord's Prayer. Remember, the disciples said, teach us how to pray. And Jesus says, pray like this. And two, I can't help but conclude from this that the principle applies to answers to prayers in the shorter run, in the now. That is, as we pray for any given thing, our prayers are stored up on the altar of God. With the prayers of others for that thing that you're praying for until they reach God's appointed time, and then God pours them out in a blessing in the best way for everybody concerned. So that no believing prayer is in vain. Why would God act any different about anything that we come to him with? Prayer's a big deal to the Lord. And one last thing for Vail Christian Church. 
I think, I, and, and I, I try my best to encourage us to be motivated to pray throughout the year. We're starting a new year. I don't know what you've been doing in your prayer time. I don't know if you have been praying, but I think that we should. In, because your prayers are not in vain. God will take the hundreds, the thousands of prayers for the coming kingdom in all the world and store our prayers up on the altar of God. You're not going to have prayed in vain. Are you praying for Vail Christian Church? Are you praying for our missionaries? Are you praying for our staff? Are you praying for me? Are you praying for um, our leadership? Are you praying for your small group? Are you praying for our, our community? Are you praying for our school district? Are you praying for uh, the leaders in our community? Are you praying for your neighbors and your family and your friends that are far from God? Are you praying for our city? Are you praying that Vail Christian Church um, would be a powerful representative of Jesus in our community? Are you praying that people would surrender their life to Christ? Are you praying for all those things? We should be in 2019. Are our prayers going to be in vain? No. When you pray, you will have shaped the end of history for the glory of God. None of your prayers are in vain. I love, think of it. God includes us in the most important way to be instrumental in the end of history. <laughs> I mean, he uses us. It's pretty powerful. It motivates me to want to pray. Bow your head with me. Lord God, thank you for this last year. Some of it's been hard, but we've learned great lessons. Some of it's been awesome, and we're full of joy and satisfaction. Some of it has been stressful. Some of it is, there's been some adversity. There's been some difficult things in all of our lives. Thank you for utilizing all of it, God, and storing up our prayers that we've um, cried out to you with on this altar. Motivate us, teach us, stretch us, cause us to grow in prayer, Lord. Thank you for giving us this weapon. It's not a civilian tool. It's a weapon of a Christ follower. It's powerful. Help us to take advantage of that, Lord God. Thank you for including us, giving us this important, vital place in your awesome divine plan. We pray that we might be worthy and live worthy and pray worthy and be effective as a church in this new year. Help us to not ever just rest on our laurels and sit back. Help us to be diligent and faithful in serving and worshiping and gathering together and giving and in praying. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I'll see you in the new year. Happy New Year.